Paratooth Radio is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts on KillerPodcast.com. Since the fall of man, a war has raged between good and evil. Over the centuries, this war has distorted the truth. Now the truth is perceived as lies, and lies acknowledged as truth. To this day, the battle continues as we investigate and debate the truth behind the history and mystery of the universe. We are Paratruth Radio. Doing research into the paranormal can lead you to research many different things. UFOs, extraterrestrials, ghosts, Bigfoot, and even have encounters with the infamous Men in Black. Some would say that this is nothing more than conspiracy theory and conjecture. But what if it's all true? Now Paratruth presents Encounters with the Strange and Unusual with special guest Jeremy Meadow. Hey, Parafans. Welcome to another episode of Paratruth Radio. Tonight I am uh, once again running solo. Eric had to be gone again because he uh, has another film that he's starting on. But uh, he will be back very soon. Uh, next week, I believe, he is supposed to be on with us uh as we do our halloween episode and uh it's going to be an awesome one uh if you guys haven't heard already uh we've got some special guests that uh, i'll announce at the end of the show to do the show with us uh but uh tonight we have an amazing show for you guys uh we are going to be talking to jeremy meter from bigfoot's pad paranormal and he's got an interesting story to tell, uh, UFOs, men in black, doing research on UFO crashes, a bunch of great things. So without further ado, let's get to the line with Jeremy Meter. All right, Jeremy, welcome to Paratruth Radio. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good. Good, good. So you've got some amazing uh, stories to tell tonight, uh, but first and foremost, what I wanted to give you a chance to do is uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your paranormal investigation and radio show, all that good stuff. All right. Well, again, my name is Jeremy Metter. I am part of a paranormal group out of Las Vegas, Nevada called the Bigfoot's Pad Paranormal. And we do ghost hunts, we do monster cases, we travel all around the country. Um, I've been on a number of different radio shows, and I've been on a several different TV shows. Um, but for the point of this interview, I guess we're going to talk about my research into a series of UFO crashes in northern Nevada. Um, I've been doing that since about 2008. Uh, lots of strange stories in the area, stories about men in black, um, Stories about the UFOs crashes, ETs, the whole shebang. Um, 
I got started doing paranormal investigating in 2003. That's when we founded our group. Um, we've done over a hundred different cases by now. And like I was saying, they're in different, several different fields of exploration. Um, we do travel and, uh, I try to collect several different eyewitness stories if I'm going to go out and do something like if we're going to go on a, say we're going to go look for Bigfoot. We try to look at all sides of, of, uh, the mystery, I guess you could say, in the area that we're traveling to. Mm-hmm. So we're not, most of the time, I mean, we're believers, but I mean, we're not naive to the point where we think that everything that we see or everything that we hear right. is uh, going to be something paranormal or uh, everything is true, I guess would be the best way to say it. Right. Well, you know, what Bigfoot is one of those things where Eric and myself, my co-host who's not here today, uh, is we're on the skeptical side, not to say that it's not a possibility, but mm-hmm. since, you know, there is so much, uh, so many people that, uh, try and fake these, these Bigfoot sightings and all that sort of stuff, it's just very mm-hmm. hard to believe in, in the Bigfoot, uh, UFOs and extraterrestrials. Again, I, I personally believe, yes, there are things out there that, uh, are from other worlds, not necessarily the ones that are supposedly abducting us, uh, I think that's more of a, a spiritual thing compared to actual aliens. But uh, it would be a little bit of a naive uh, thinking that we're the only planet that could support life. Yeah. Um, so let's start off with the, the UFO crashes that you've investigated. All right, well... I guess the first, the best place to start would be on the morning of July 7th, 1952, at about 10.30 in the morning, uh, witnesses over in Salt Lake City, Utah, said that they saw what they thought was a teardrop, uh, it was shaped like a teardrop, they saw this object was on fire, and it was speeding over Salt Lake City, going from east to west, and they said that the thing was leaving a blue gaseous cloud behind it, this thing was traveling fast. Some people say that they saw that they saw a green pea fireball, and other people say that they saw the thing I was telling you. They said it was bright orange with a blue smoke trail behind it, and there's a reason for that, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Well, this object, like I said, was speeding from east to west early in the morning, and people were just getting about their day, and uh, the military ba- Hill Air Force Base was conducting conducting training missions at the time early in the morning. And right right before this thing showed up, I guess there was a guy named Robert Calwhite. He was flying a bomber in the area, and he was sent to chase after this object. And they were saying that as he was chasing this object, uh, they were going at speeds of up to 400 miles an hour, and they couldn't catch up to this thing. And I guess... The best way to say it is this object was off in the distance, and all of a sudden, this object just completely stopped in midair, and the bomber was actually catching up to it. And all, when the when the bomber actually caught up to this object, whatever the object was, it shot down towards the ground, and it took off at lightning speeds out towards Nevada. Well, they thought that whatever the object was had crashed on the on the west side of the Salt Lake. Okay. And the military actually sent a search party out originally to search the Salt Lake, uh, the Salt Lake right there by Salt Lake City. Okay. And, uh, the next, the next part of the story is the Ogden Standard Examiner, they said there was a giant blast was heard in Montello, Nevada, 
which is uh, 112 miles west of Ogden. And uh, a guy named W.S. Hobbs, he was an assistant train master uh, for the Southern Pacific Railroad. And he said that there was a heavy explosion right outside of town at about 10.30. And there, they said that there was blue, the blue smoke cloud was in the air for, I guess, uh, about 30 minutes, 15 to 30 minutes, depending on which witness you want to talk to. And, uh, they said that this blast shook the ground and the, and I guess it was knocking people to their feet. They thought that like a, a bomb was going off or that people were dynamiting in the area. Oh wow. But they, but they were saying that there was no known blasting in the area at the time. And, uh, this happened in a place called the Dairy Valley, which is right outside of Montello, Nevada. And Montello nowadays only has about 12 residents, so this is a pretty remote place even today. Mm-hmm. So fast forward, right after the explosion happened, there's a guy named Ralph Gibbs. He's a soil conservation official. He actually got a posse together with local ranchers to go investigate this explosion. And uh, they they had taken off... I think it was the next day they had left Montello to go look at this burning piece of land. Well, they got there and they said that they, they measured that there was a 600 acre tract of land that was freshly burned. And, uh, they couldn't find any evidence of a meteor and they couldn't find evidence of a UFO crash. Like all evidence was gone. Hmm. So the strange part of the mystery is they don't know really what happened. Right. To, to this object. Right. Well, around the time that the UFO crashes, or around the time the Montello blast, I guess you would call it, happened, um, there was a Delta Airlines that was over Portland, Oregon. They said that they saw a green pea, uh, green pea fireball. I guess the object, like I said, was round, and this one is green. They said that they saw this object that fly by its fly by the plane going from north to south. I guess you would call it south southeast, heading towards uh, heading towards Salt Lake City. Okay. Well, this is and all of a sudden, like I said, this object's going from the the first object, which was a teardrop shaped object. It was going from east to west over Salt Lake City, and I told you the object went to a a complete stop in the middle of the air mm. when the B twenty seven was chasing it. Well. Uh, while the object stopped, Major Cal White and several witnesses said that they saw what they thought was a flash of lightning above the city. Well, what 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 happened shortly after that, they don't really say what this flash of lightning was, but we have a pretty good idea what it was. Well, at 11.30 a.m., there was an airlines pilot for a different airlines. It doesn't say this is in the Salt Lake City, uh, uh, Salt Lake City, Utah Review on July 8th, 1952. They said 11.30 a.m., they saw a fresh forest fire in the scrub pine and sagebrush near Pilot Creek, which is 30 miles west of Wendover, Wendover, Nevada, slash Utah, because half the town's in Nevada and half the town's in Utah. So we have two crash sites now. We have the first one, which is over in the Dairy Valley by Montello, Nevada. Mm -hmm. We have this other other forest fire that's a mysterious forest fire uh, about an hour and a half south by Wendover, Nevada. Well, so depending on the the witnesses that you talk to, most witnesses could agree that they saw this flash of lightning. Well, what actually happened 
because I've talked to different people that were in the military and people from both both areas, mm-hmm. is allegedly the object from Portland, Oregon, that one actually collided with the object over uh, Salt Lake City. When the object went to a complete stop, the smaller object, which was the P object, crashed into the teardropped object. And then for some reason, the teardropped object uh, took off towards Nevada, and the P-shaped object crashed, like I said, near Wendover, Nevada. Hmm. Um, so just to give a quick recap, so there was a search party by Salt Lake City searching the Salt Lake and searching around the Salt Lake for remnants of what they thought was the craft because they thought it had crashed there but actually crashed in Montello, Nevada. Well, the civilian search party was searching the Dairy Valley looking for whatever. They didn't know this was a UFO crash at the time. Okay. So they were searching for something that caused that explosion out in the Dairy Valley. So now there's reports coming in uh, near Pilot Creek in Wendover, Nevada, of another another fire. Well, the green object, like I said, crashed in the south. And some of the best stories that I have, they come from volunteer firefighters that pulled up to the area from Montello, Nevada. And uh, I'd actually talked to two of the volunteer firefighters that are still alive on the phone. And I guess what they had told me was... They had they had reports of a fire and they had seen smoke in the air, so they got their crew together and they rode out to this site where they thought that there was a brush fire going on. Well, as they were pulling up, they said that there was thick smoke covering the air and they said it was a weird type of smoke. They said uh, it almost left like a a strange film on you when you were when you would be walking through it, and they were saying that. The smell in the air was almost like a chemical, metallic-type smell. Hmm. So these days, I think their crew was about six or eight people. I'm not uh, I'm not very sure about how many people it takes to man a fire right. truck and yeah. all that. But right. So they had their small crew come out, and they said they're unwinding their hose and getting their gear ready, and they said that they start walking towards towards where all the smoke's coming from and as they're walking towards where the smoke's coming from they said that that smells getting getting stronger and stronger to the point to where when they get to the a certain point they see that there's a an object embedded deep into the ground and it's shaped like a almost like a sphere and again it really was glowing glowing green just like the people had said and they said that this object looked like it was wet for some reason. Hmm. Like someone had sprayed it down with a garden hose is the way the guy worded it. And uh, I guess it scared the hell out of these guys. And they were getting ready to – they didn't know whether to try to spray this thing off with their hose. They didn't know whether to uh, call, call for reinforcements from Hill Air Force Base in, right. in Utah. And the next thing you know, they said that the military ended up showing up, I guess a few minutes later, and they took the firemen off of the site, and they took them back to Wendover, Nevada, and they interrogated these guys. But other than that, there's no other reports that I know of that come from that crash site. I can't get anyone from the military to talk to me. I can't get any people from Wendover, Nevada, because as far as I know, the only people that saw it were the people on the airline that flew over. And the firefighters are the only people that want to talk about it. And like I said, this was outside of town a little ways, so civilians didn't actually go to the crash site. Right. 
They did, however, like I said, go to the other crash site to the north by Montello, Nevada. And they, they were saying that they couldn't find anything when this first happened. So they don't know if the military had come and picked up, picked up things throughout the night. Cause like I was saying, they said that this thing was a massive explosion. And for there to not be a burning fire, whether this was a meteor or an airplane or whatever you want to think it is. Yeah. That's unusual. Right. And what people were saying, I don't know for a fact if this happened, but I think that the military put out the fire and picked up as much of the wreckage as they could find. Because at the time, like I said, they didn't have metal detectors or anything when this crew headed out there. They didn't They didn't think that it was a UFO. They thought that it was a meteor is what the newspapers say. Well, but, uh, like the UFO crash in Roswell, they said one thing and then it they changed their their story to something else so that they could cover their tracks. So yeah. So, like I said, so the northern site, the, they don't know what happened to it, but all the wreckage was picked up. The southern site doesn't say how the military picked it up, but they do have. I do have records of the military actually arriving on the site. Well, um, I told you Major Cal White was flying his B twenty seven on a training mission mm-hmm. on July seventh when the when the object was seen flying over Salt Lake City. Well, the very next day on July 8th and July 9th, witnesses report seeing other airplanes, B-27s, flying towards the Derry Valley. So the military had an interest in this site. They don't say exactly what they were doing, but Project Blue Book says that they that these airplanes were taken off. And then uh, the Ogden Standard Examiner also says that the, that the military was doing training missions or flyby missions in the area. So something happened there. Right, yeah. I don't know. Um, What else is strange about it is I told you around 10.30 in the morning is when all this this was going on Mm. in... in northern Utah, yeah, northern Utah where Salt Lake City is, the southern crash that, the southern crash site wasn't reported until 11.30, so an hour later is when people started seeing that. Hmm. Um, so I don't know where they got stories of ETs from. Right. Because, because if you're talking about the Nevada UFO crash, on the internet they say that the UFO crash happened in August uh, yeah, August of 1952, and they say there were 16 alien bodies. Well, this specific incident, there's no reports of alien bodies, so it didn't come from this. But I'll get into the other, the other aspects of the other cases I was getting into a little bit later. So for that one, like I said, it's mostly just story of two objects colliding. And again, these objects, like I was, I was going to tell you, witnesses reported that there was a flash of lightning scene. Uh, and over Ogden, Utah, and Salt Lake City, Utah, was where most of the witnesses come from. Well, some people all the way down in Cedar City reported seeing the flash of, flash of lightning. They have some. They have the earthquake detecting centers around the country, and one of the earthquake detecting centers all the way in, all the way in Pikes Peak, Colorado, even reported uh, on their scale, on their scale, whatever they use. Mm-hmm. They were saying that they actually were able to track whatever had crashed over in Montello, Nevada. That's how big this explosion was. Wow. And I think that's uh, the majority of that. 
without getting into all the specific details right. of, the, of every individual story. Right. All right. Well, uh, I think we'll take our first break here. Folks, you are listening to Paratruth Radio. I'm talking to Jeremy Metter about uh, his research into UFOs and uh the uh, the different things that he's found throughout his research. We will be right back after Eric's Random Fact of the Day. Now, Eric's Random Fact of the Day. Did you know that there is a persistent thunderstorm at Lake Maracaibo, Venezuela? According to factslides.com, a lightning storm occurs in the area for about 10 hours a night. 140 to 160 nights a year for a total of about 1.2 million lightning discharges per year. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, folks, welcome back to Paratruth Radio. My name is Justin, and I'm talking to Jeremy Mutter about UFOs and other research that he's done uh, throughout the past uh, couple years now. Uh, now, Jeremy, we were talking about the UFO uh, crashes in Nevada, and um, we, we're talking about the Montello, Montello one, uh, but uh, get, getting into a couple of the others really fast before we get into a couple of the, the rocks that you've been uh have found in uh, your couple encounters with the men in black. Uh, why don't we just talk a little bit about the other UFO encounters? Okay. Well, when you search Ely, when you search Ely, Nevada, UFO crash, you you pull up a web page that says there were 16 alien bodies. It gives you a date, August of 1952. And other than that, there's not much there. So I originally found out about this in 2008 when I was uh, on doing my own my own radio show, actually, and I liked the story, and I wanted to find out more about it, because at the time, I didn't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Well, the the stories on the internet don't actually really match up with what happened in reality. The, the In reality, after talking to witnesses, the main bulk of the story actually takes place in 1953, and it took place in the winter of 1953, Depending on who you talk to, they'll say it happened at either 9 o'clock at night or about 10 o'clock at night. So in that range, hmm. there was a there's a big old copper mine outside of Ely, Nevada, in a small town called Ruth. It's nine miles outside of Ely. Ely is the biggest town in White Pine County. It has about 4,000 4, residents in it. And Ruth is a company town that was built for the copper mine, and they have slightly over 200 people. So this is a 
pretty small town. The whole town's pretty much run by this mine. Right. That's the main employer in the area. Well, anyway, so during the night shift, an object, a glowing, a glowing object actually came down from the sky and crashed on a snowbank on the edge of the mine, uh, on the edge of the mine property. And some of the best stories actually come from the security guards that were at the mine uh, at the time because they used to drive around the very edge of the mine in their patrol, their patrol vehicles mm. monitoring for trespassers or whatever, whoever goes on the mine. Yes. Well, this object, like I said, crashed onto a snowbank and they didn't know what it was. They thought that it was a small airplane had crashed because, uh, this was a few years after Roswell, within mm-hmm. five, six years after Roswell. And the military actually knew how to handle this, this kind of stuff. So the military ended up rolling in quickly. I don't know if they were tracking this object or if somebody called it. There's no documentation to say what happened. What really happened, yeah. Like how they found out about it. So the military rolls in. They block off the main entrance to the mine. And the press, like the the newspapers... TV at the time and all the townspeople were gathering at the entrance to the Robinson Copper Mine to find out what, what had just happened. Mm. Well, uh, if you look at, if, you, if you're standing at the entrance to the mine, you can't see the snowbank where the object had crashed if you're standing at the entrance to the mine. And this happened again in the middle of the night. So most people in town, in a small town like that are already in bed or they're not, they're not looking for things like that. Mm. The military picks up the, the bulk of the object and they put it onto some flatbed trucks and they drive it out the backside of the mine, which is uh, away from where all the media is. And these trucks, they drive past a place called Duckwater, Nevada. It's an Indian reservation uh, outside of town. And the, these, these trucks are driving to Hill Air Force Base because at the time Area 51 didn't exist. So they either had to go to Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas or they had to take the object to Hill Air Force Base in uh, Ogden, Utah. So like I said, they were taking this object to Ogden, Utah to Hill Air Force Base, and Hill Air Force Base is going to ship it out to wherever they decide. Most of the stories of the object, the object itself, come from residents in Duckwater, Nevada. They said in the middle of the night, because this is an even smaller town than Ruth and Ely, Nevada, Duckwater has a population of about 100 people. Mm-hmm. They said that they saw the object was uh, covered up with tarps and they were driving really recklessly and fast through the streets and people were uh, leaving their houses and they were wondering, why is there a military convoy driving through our town in the middle of the night? Because <laughs> right. they, they don't get much action like that around there. Right. So... Over the course of the next week, week and a half, military police officers start showing up in town and they're going door to door asking people what they had seen. And some people said that that the officers were actually uh, pulling out their handguns and waving them around, not really threatening them, but just letting them know that, hey, I have a gun and you better try to almost trying to intimidate these people. That's the word I was looking for. They're trying to intimidate these people. And the same thing happened in Ruth, Nevada, the town that's right by the entrance to the copper mine. But the military was asking people what they had seen about what they had, what they knew about this airplane that had crashed outside of town. Um, the mine was shut down for an undesignated amount of time because, like I said, for some reason, this this 1953 crash it's not reported in the Ely the Ely Times newspaper, it was the biggest newspaper in town at the time. 
It wasn't reported there. Most of the stories come from eyewitness testimony. Okay. Um, like I said, the most I found is that people were around town kept saying that the media said that there was a small plane that had crashed. Right. So the reason why I know that the object was brought to Hill Air Force Base, this is a, uh, one of the questions I always receive, is I actually contacted Hill Air Force Base in 2008 when I first started doing this. And I actually sent in a request to speak with the base historian about what had happened. I originally didn't tell him I was looking for UFOs. I said I was looking for strange aerial crashes. Oh, okay. And I actually, like I said, I sent in the online online request form, and I received a call from an officer at Hale Air Force Base. And he was asking me, the conversation went, went like this. He goes, so what are you looking for? And I told him I was looking for crashes. He said, what kind of crashes? I said, strange, unexplained ones. And the guy got quiet, and he goes, well, where at? And I said, oh, well, right now I'm looking at Ely, Nevada in the early 50s. And the guy got re- really quiet, but you could tell that he knew what I was talking about. Yeah. And he goes, well, those types of crashes are classified. And I told him, okay, well, if something were to crash, like an airplane or something something of that matter, what would happen? And the guy said, well, I can't talk about anything that's top secret or anything that might have happened that's classified, but if there were some kind of an aerial crash, we would have brought it to Hill Air Force Base, just like the witness Duckwater. The They brought it to Hill Air Force Base, and he says they were a sub-depot is what he called it. And what a sub-depot does is they they ship packages, as he called it, from Hill Air Force Base to a bigger Air Force Base, such as Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where a lot of people say our UFOs get taken or... Wherever you want to call it, Edwards Air Force Base, just a bigger base in general. And he didn't—he didn't admit to me that yes, this happened, or yes, no, it didn't happen. But he did hint to me that he knew what I was talking about. And that seems to be the case with most of government officials that know what's going on. They, they hint at it, but because they can't really say for sure. But yeah. So that was weird. I mean, it was—it was interesting. But it, the weird part about it is. So I do the majority of my UFO case with my friend Nick, who's also part of my paranormal group. Mm-hmm. So I talked to the guy at Hill Air Force Base, and about a week later I received a call from Nellis Air Force Base in uh, Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So they had called me, and they didn't ask me anything about the UFO case or anything about my, my unexplained crashes I was looking at, which I thought was kind of weird. Right. They asked at the time I was in college, and they were asking me what my who my college professors were. They asked me what kind of car I drove. So I'm thinking, okay, these in my head, I'm thinking these guys are going to come raid my house or something, or these guys are going to come get me because <laughs> you hear about that kind of stuff in the movies right. and on TV. So what was weird is he was just asking me personal questions about me and my friend Nick because at the time Nick was living with me. Oh, okay. We were going to go to Ely on a Thursday or a Friday. We were going to leave Vegas to go to Ely. Well, they called me on a Monday or a Tuesday is when the military base called me. Well, a couple days later, that was like two or three days before we were supposed to leave, I uh, received a call from a woman over in Ruth, Nevada that we were supposed to meet up with. And she starts saying, oh, well, I want to thank you guys for the interview that you did with me. And she starts talking about this interview. 
And I told her, I was like, hey, I, I don't know who you talked to, but we didn't even leave Vegas yet. We're, we weren't going to be there for like a couple more days. Oh, wow. And the lady starts describing what, what happened during the interview, and they started describing uh, there's two, two guys cut out of a car, and they talked to this woman. They said that they were me and my friend Nick. And they told this woman about my college, my college professors. They were talking about my friends and they were talking about, uh, like different video games I play online. And I was like, who was that? I don't know who it was, right. but I don't know who it was, but they, the information I had given the base historian at Nellis Air Force Base, I don't know if they sent out they sent the information to somebody up north, and then they went and visited this woman. But somebody visited this woman, and it scared her so bad that she never ended up doing her interview with us, and she oh. never talked to us again. Wow. So there's a chain of events dealing with the military that built up and up and up until it reaches a breaking point a couple years later. Um, so something happened. And the roots, Nevada, and that copper mine. Right. But I don't exactly know what. Right. I think it's a UFO crash personally, but some people think, like I said, that it actually was a small plane. Uh, depend. A lot of townspeople say that the, the mine was acting really strange because this mine works around the clock, and usually, depending on whatever is going on, they don't really shut this mine down very often. Oh, okay. And. A plane, say say that a plane did crash on there. Just say it is a plane. Mm. The plane didn't really crash in the area that they were mining in. So there wouldn't really be a reason for them to shut down the whole mine if a plane had crashed on a deserted area of the mine that's not really being used. Right. And this was a big operation, like I said. This is one of the main employers in town. And they also, at the time, hauled the, they hauled the ore out of the mine to a refinery using a railroad. Like a, it's called the Nevada Northern Railway. Oh, okay. And the railway, those workers didn't go to work either at the time. So something must have happened in the mine for them to shut down this railroad and make all those workers not go to work. Right. The mine was losing money because, like I said, they're competing with they're competing with the market prices. They want to get as much of that ore out as they can while the price is at a uh, whatever it was at at the time. So. If that mine shuts down, the town will go into a it will turn into a ghost town because it's shut down a few times in the past. Oh, okay. They said the population of the town cut down by half, like literally went down to about fifteen hundred people within a month. Hmm. So for them to shut down this mine, it must some something pretty major would have had to have happened for all these families and people to not have worked for a while. Right. Um popular story, if you look it up on the internet, is that there's a, a security guard at the copper mine, like I was saying earlier. Uh, he said that he saw a UFO crash. Then I talked to the lady that told that has that put the story on the internet, mm-hmm. and she was telling me that this this security guard he saw something come down from the sky and crash crash in the mine at a. Uh, she didn't say where it crashed, but I know it happened on that snowbank. And he was told that – he told the story that he was interrogated within hours of that happening. He was told to stay on the mine property, and they interrogated him. Um, I know several of the other first responders at the mine that actually thought that this was an airplane. They were interrogated also. 
But nowadays, if you go over to the Robinson Copper Mine, of course, civilians, regular civilians that don't work there aren't allowed on the mine property to get arrested. But if you go, to, if you look at the snowbank nowadays, you can't even tell that anything happened there. Wow. Because when I was pointed in the right direction and people were telling me where it happened, you can't even tell that anything, you don't see any crater. Whatever it was, it must have been pretty light because it didn't damage the ground or there wasn't really an explosion. It's kind of like a big thud and it just just hit the ground. Mm-hmm. Well, more signs and more proof that this actually did happen. And in 1955, the government started a, a top-secret classified project called Project High Range. Mm. Project High Range was supposedly built to track the X-15 rocket plane from Edwards Air Force Base going diagonally to Salt Lake City. The X-15 rocket plane was a supersonic jet, and it could fly in the lower atlas- atmosphere and land on a regular runway like a air- like a regular airplane. Mm. So... They needed a area that they could go at very high top speeds and, ch- and test out this airplane. They had four tracking stations. They had one in northern Utah. They had one in on top of Kimberly Mountain in Ely, Nevada, one in Beatty, Nevada, and then one in Edwards Air Force Base in Cal- California. <coughs> so um, this, like I said, 1955 is the time they started the construction on this. They finished, I think it was an operation at around 1957 or 1959, and they tracked the X-15 rocket plane until 1979. That's when the, that's when NASA stopped, stopped using the site, and they gave the site over to the United States Air Force. Well, that's when things get a little weird, because Although the project was top secret, the Ely Times newspaper would occasionally talk about the site or that they would say that they're doing doing whatever up there. Mm-hmm. Well, when the Air Force took over, they don't publish anything in the newspapers. They don't talk to the TV or radio stations. But uh, the, official, the only press release that they, re- that they released said that they were tracking cruise missiles in the, in the 80s and 90s up there. Well, I interviewed a couple of the workers that had worked at the Kimberly Mountain Tracking Station, mm-hmm. and they were saying that they were tracking UFOs and they were tracking those cruise missiles. Well, doing my own research, I noticed that if you look at the UFO crash sites in Roswell, the Plains of San Augustine, the Kingman, Arizona, Kecksburg, and this, mm-hmm. the, there's a, the military put similar tracking stations around all of these crash sites within a few years of them happening. Well, I was speaking to different people that had worked at these tracking stations, and they were saying that at the time the military thought, well, if a UFO had crashed in this area, they thought that more UFOs would come to the area, whether they would crash because of a something in the area, like some kind of a... I mean, you want to call it the magnetism in the area right. would make, they didn't know if that would happen or if the other objects would come back looking for the ones that had crashed. So they thought that if an object had crashed here, that there would be more. That's the short version of it. So, um, ironically, they built this tracking station on top of Kimberly Mountain. And for those, for your listeners that aren't aware of the area, Kimberly Mountain overlooks the Copper Flats, which is where that object had crashed onto the snowbank. Oh, okay. And it overlooks Duckwater Indian Reservation off a little ways. 
So it, it goes along with the story and it goes along with, with what other experts and other people that did these UFO crashes had told me. So the United States Air Force used the site until 1993. And then there's no record, like I said, of people, people working there and there's no record of it staying open. So the records get a little bit shady. Mm-hmm. In 2013, I actually decided to drive up to the site because, I mean, you could go up there nowadays, but it's pretty dangerous and not really recommended. Oh. So uh, we had a rental car. We actually had a Chevy Malibu, of all things, and we took on this <laughs> four-wheel drive road up the side of a mountain. So we got to the top of the mountain, and there's there's modern-day cell phone towers, and there's a couple of old military trailers. Yeah, so anyways, we got to the top of the mountain, and amongst the, the the new radio towers, you could see that there's a massive stand for a radar dish that used to be there in the 50s or the 60s. I don't know if this was the original, the stand for the original radar dish. I'm pretty sure it was, but this thing was bigger than several houses put together, hmm. and there's small... There's small military trailers with electronic wires running from them into one or two of these small buildings that are up there. And this is nowadays. Well, it was me, my brother, and my friend Nick. And I was I was taking pictures and I was filming some videos for the Internet with my brother. And I hear my friend Nick say, whoa, the door's open on one of these buildings. Oh, okay. So... I was like, okay, well, we're not going to trespass, yeah. but but I walk over. We walk over to the side of the building where the doors cracked open, and we peek inside without 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 walking in the building. You could see inside there, and uh, the best way that I could explain this for your listeners is there were there were about six or eight. It looked like 1980s Mac computers, like really old, old school computers with the black background with the green letters. Mm-hmm. And they were running some kind of code, like, uh, I'm trying to think of how to word it. There was scrolling text on the screen. Oh, okay. And it was like, almost like, I, the best way I could explain is there was scrolling text and there was, they were running some kind of code, but there was nobody in the building. I don't know what it was tracking or what it was doing, but, I was going to take a picture, but my friend Nick got kind of scared and he shut the door. And that's kind of my story about the Kimberly Mountain Tracking Station. So I talked to a man over in Ely, Nevada. He works for a concrete company that operates in the copper mine as a contractor. And he was telling me that by asking around, because I guess he was interested in this story too since he's been up there, because mm-hmm. he's from Las Vegas like I am. And he said that he was asking around at the the locals that live in the mine, or not live in the mine, but li- they work at the mine. Mm. And they told him that there's similar tracking stations on one or two of the other mountains around Ely, but they're updated. They're not old. They're like brand new. So they're still tracking something in the area. I don't know what. I don't know if it's modern day aircraft or UFOs, but they, those sites, though, you can you can get shot and you can get arrested for going up there. Hmm. But uh that's another thing. On your way up to the Kimberly Mountain tracking station, when you're when you're driving up this dirt road, there's a sign that says that you could get shot and you have to contact the base manager or whoever was in charge to get up this mountain. Oh wow. 
this was back in, I guess, up until the 1990s. And you can see that's a really old sign. And when you pass the sign, there's three or four different areas. We can see they used to have guard shacks or they used to have gates and things to get up there. So there actually was high security to get up there in the, in the back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, nowadays, if you go up there, the road is very dangerous. It's not paved and it's not maintained. There's boulders in the road, sharp pieces of metal, and because they have pipes that run pipes and uh, different electrical wires that run under under the road, and uh, the road is frequently washed out by rain, snow, because hmm. Ely gets one of the highest precipitation rates in Nevada that I know of. Oh, wow. um, it snows there year round, or it's raining year round. Every time I've ever been there, it's rained or snowed. But uh, just historically speaking, it's a the the roads there get destroyed pretty quickly. Hmm. So the 1953 crash, like I was saying, there's not a whole lot in the newspapers, and, uh, and there's not a whole lot on the old radio programs talking about what had happened. But I interviewed at least, I'd say, about 20 different witnesses who lived in Ely at the time who said that this actually did happen. And some of those people were contacted by military police officers, what they called them, who actually went into their homes and interrogated them and said, don't talk about this. Wow. Um, as far as I know, nobody nobody on the Internet knows where the story came from. Well, I did some digging around, and I found out that there's a guy named Willard McIntyre. Uh, he, was of a, he was part of a UFO group called Marson. Mm-hmm. He'd actually come out to Ely in the early 70s and collected reports from the Duckwater, the Duckwater Indian Reservation. And that's where the earliest records come from. And he used to have a magazine called the New Atlantean Journal. And he published the story as part of a UFO crash list that he put in there. And I think it was 1982. So he waited, I guess, about 10 years to put it in this issue of this magazine. Mm -hmm. And that's the earliest mention of the story besides in the official locals' history. Right. Yeah. Wow, that's, I mean, it, it, getting into UFOs is always a interesting topic for me, but just to hear, you know, the stuff outside of Roswell is just amazing. Um, I think uh, we're going to take our next break here, folks. You're listening to Paratruth Radio. I'm talking to Jeremy Metter about UFOs that he's uh, done research on and crashes. So we will be right back after your paranormal headlines. And now, Paratruth Radio's Paranormal Headlines. How's it going, Parafans? Justin here with your Paranormal Headlines. These headlines are from unexplainedmysteries.com. Bear filmed riding in the back seat of a car. The peculiar spectacle was picked up on camera by a motorist driving along a Russian highway. Recorded in the central Russian city of Ekaterinburg, the footage shows the brown bear fidgeting around the back of a Volga car before sticking its head out of the passenger window. Despite the fact that Russia's famous Filatov Circus, which specializes in performing bears, was in town at the time of the sighting, circus head Julia Filatova maintains that it wasn't one of theirs. 
Our bears are much bigger, she said. Normally little bears are kind and friendly. If it was more than a year old, it wouldn't have fit in such a car and certainly wouldn't have gone inside happily. When asked about the incident, local police officials stated that they had no intention of arresting the driver because the bear had been wearing a seatbelt and that, therefore, no laws had been broken. October is Zombie Preparedness Month. Kansas Governor Sam Brownback signed the peculiar proclamation as a fun way to tackle natural disasters. What better way to prepare for the possibility of a natural disaster than to pretend that you are and your family are getting ready for a zombie apocalypse? Or at least that's the idea behind the bizarre new concept being put forward by authorities in Kansas this month. If you're prepared for zombies, you're prepared for anything, said Brownback. Although an actual zombie apocalypse will never happen, the preparation for such an event is the same as for any disaster. Make a disaster kit, have a plan, and practice it. When asked what he would do in the event of a zombie apocalypse, the governor had surprisingly come up with a plan that wouldn't have looked out of place in an episode of The Walking Dead. My son and I talked about this, he said. It would be best to go to my dad's farm and get on a combine. Then you could move through. Hopefully you've got enough fuel. Hopefully he won't be needing to try out his plan for real anytime soon. And this has been Justin with your Paranormal Headlines. This was a segment of Parachute Radio's Paranormal Headlines. folks welcome back to paratruth radio my name is justin and i've been talking to jeremy uh, metter about uh, his ufo research that he's done uh jeremy we are coming close to the end of the show but really fast before we uh and i did want to touch base on the uh men in black encounters that you've had well the men in black encounters actually started out i'd say around 2012 2013 um I was putting the Ely Times newspaper as a as a guest, I guess you would call it, and I was interviewed by a guy called Lucas Egan. He used to be the reporter for the Ely Times, and he put me he put me in there as a story saying I was looking for information about the 1953 copper mine incident, and I was woken up one day by a an old an old man actually called me. He started talking about this case that took place over by a, a small mining town called Cherry Creek, Nevada, mm. which is about an hour, hour and a half north of Ely. Well, I didn't know what he was talking about, but he told me that he actually had witnessed this firsthand. Um, I explained earlier that there's at the time the copper mine over in Ruth, Nevada, when they would mine the ore, they would bring it out of the mine using rail car. And the rail, railroad was the Nevada, Nevada Northern Railway. There was a, the smelter that they would bring it to was over in a town called McGill, Nevada. And north of that was a town called Cherry Creek. So the, the tracks run really close to Cherry Creek. Oh, okay. And on this specific morning, this happened around noon or they either happened, happened around noon 
or they discovered this around noon. He he wasn't sure. I'd asked him. Mm-hmm. So this this train is hauling a bunch of copper ore, and they come around the bend right outside of Cherry Creek, and he says that they could see that there's trouble ahead. His exact words were that the tracks were torn up and thrown around like pretzels. Hmm. So they could see that the tracks are damaged, and they stop the train, and it partially derails. And this was a, a major railway mm-hmm. wreck, I guess you would call it. Right. So the train partially derails, and they're trying to find out, man, what the heck happened to these tracks? What's going on? So I guess he says he looks off to the side. He was the brake man on the train. He said he's after braking, he looks off to the side. They said you could see where an object had skidded off into the base of the mountain, almost like this object had come from the sky. It had hit, it had hit the tracks and bounced off into the mountains. And this object, he said it was silver, it was oval shaped, and it was flipped upside down, and there was a big hole ripped in the side. Hmm. So, he says that uh, all the people on the train, they started getting off the train, and they were standing next to the train wondering, okay, so what are we gonna do now? Right. And, he was telling me that while they were sitting there, there was a female rancher, and her friend that had actually gone up up to the site, picked up pieces of whatever this is, and drove drove out of there. Because uh, this happened close to Nevada, uh, the Nevada County Road Number Six. What that was at the time, there was no interstate, so you had to take that road to go from Ely up north to Elko, Nevada, or to go to Salt Lake City. You had to take that road. Okay. So, and that road runs between the mountain and the railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, they they must have used that road. And I guess he said shortly, I don't know if they had called the military or if the military showed up on their own, but eventually the military shows up on the scene. They 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 take the people uh, that were on the train and they ship them back to Ely and interrogate them in the Ely jail. Okay. Well, uh, if you talk to the to the military witnesses, they were saying that this was the Nevada Ninth National Guard, and uh, there's an armory in Ely, like a military armory with National Guards people with National Guard troops stationed there. So the soldiers actually were stationed in Ely at the time. Hmm. So it didn't take them that long to get there, about an hour, hour and a half, like I said. So, anyways, they were saying that the military was saying when they got up to the scene. That this object, as they were coming closer, they could see that it was made of a, almost like a shiny metallic type of material, but they said that it wasn't a silver material like most UFO crashes were. They said that this object was green, mm-hmm. almost like the one that from, almost like the one from, uh, 1952 over in Montello, Nevada. Mm-hmm. So, um, Whoever was in charge of the group, they ordered that they ordered this road to be blocked off, the county road number six, and they weren't allowing traffic to come through here, which is a pretty major deal, like I said, because that's the only way to get to mo- most of eastern Nevada during the time. Right. And he said that when he walked inside the, when he walked inside this hole that was ripped in the side, of course there were different types of debris inside and there were alien bodies Mm -hmm. he said that it looked like you were standing on the desert floor it looked like there were no walls around him like he said that you could see like a green sparkly type material around him 
But other than that, you couldn't even tell that you were standing inside of an object. Huh. He said it almost looked like modern day night vision, like the, the green. Oh, okay. Where it's a green with, with speckles of yellow. Right. If there's like light flashes on the screen. Yep. And he was in there for what he thought was a few minutes, but from what I was told, he was actually in there for a couple hours, but he said it only seemed like a couple of minutes when he was in there. But, uh, he said that when he walked outside, he was ordering his men to start picking up the major pieces of whatever was on the ground. And as what's weird was there were foot, small footprints around the crash site. Like some of the aliens, I guess, didn't die in the crash site and they were walking around at some point before the military got there, before the train got there. Mm-hmm. And what was kind of cool was they said some of the tracks went off into the woods. Like, I don't know if some of them ran off in the woods to hide from the people or what. Mm-hmm. But the military actually sent some people to go search the area. And this was in 1964, if I didn't mention that already. So they had helicopters, but they were kind of Vietnam-era helicopters. Right. A little bit, a few, five, about five years before that. And... uh I don't exactly know if they found anything. They weren't sure, the soldiers that I talked to, they weren't sure what they found. But uh, in 1979, there was a, yeah, it was 1979, I think it was November 4th is what it was in the Ely Times. There was a man that said that he had found a turtle skull out in the flatlands, actually in the woods out right by the flatlands. Mm-hmm. And he said that there was strange bones. He said, like I said, he called it a turtle skull. There's not really any explanation for what it was. Oh, okay. Um, the locals all say that they think that it was one of those aliens that actually got out of the craft and had died out in the woods. And, uh, I was doing another, I was doing a radio program, uh, but I think a couple days after I'd found out this information. And I went on the radio program and I was talking about this. And the very next day, I had gone to work. I actually gone to work that night that I did the radio show. And the next morning, when I came, because I work graveyard shift, I forgot to mention. So. Oh, okay. So I graveyard shift at a casino. So I went to work after the radio show and did my graveyard shift. And uh, I came home around 11 in the morning. And I, I live on a corner. So I parked, I parked in the driveway and... And I was getting ready to get out of the car. I had my feet were hanging out of the car. And as I was getting ready to stand up, a white sedan with blacked out windows comes flying around the corner and stops behind me, like blocking me, almost like a, like a, it was like sitting like a T shape mm-hmm. where I couldn't, I couldn't move. So I, I get out of the car and I go the long way around. I, I go in front of my car. Walk around the passenger side. I'm going to walk around to see what was going on. And as I'm walking towards the back of my car, I see his license plate says U.S. government, official use only. And it was a white license plate with gray letters. Mm -hmm. And as I'm reading this, the door opens on the car and a man in a military fatigue steps out of the car. I'm thinking, oh, man. It's starting now. That's what's interesting. It's it's get this is going to be interesting. Is what I was thinking because you already know what it's about. Because right. I just did the radio show the night before. Yeah. And uh, the guy he gets out and he doesn't say who he is. And at the time, like I said, you think in your you think in your head now. You go, okay, well, I'm going to ask who you are. 
I'm going to ask, uh, where do you have business interrogating me and who are you to tell me what to do? Right. I mean, I think that now, or you think, man, I'm going to take out my phone. I'm going to take his picture. When this happens to you in real life, you, so you have so many things racing through your head. You don't really think of those sort of things. Right. And anyway, so my encounter took, it took place for only a few minutes, but this guy, he steps out and starts asking me, so, did you find the aliens yet? That's the first thing he told me, did you find the aliens yet? And uh, I didn't really know what to say. I, was, I said, no. <laughs> and he says, oh, well, I heard you're looking for him. And I said, well, yeah, but I mean, I haven't found nothing. I haven't found no alien bodies or nothing like that. That's what you're talking about. So the guy, he starts asking me a couple questions about uh, my interview I had done the night before and when I was, my stuff I do in Ely. Well, after a few minutes of talking to me, he, he says, well, tell your friend Nick I said hi as he's getting back in the car. Wow. And my friend Nick, like I said, is one that does all the UFO cases with me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh-oh. Right. So he gets in the car. He shuts the door and he pulls forward probably about two houses and he parks in front of our mailbox. And uh, I get I get back in the car because I'm not I don't know what's going to happen. I plan on going to the grocery store anyways mm. after work that day. So as I get back in the car and I'm backing out, I see the guys doing some kind of paperwork on a clipboard. I don't know what exactly he was doing, but um, so I pull out of the neighborhood. And there's a four-way stop right outside the, outside my neighborhood. I get to the four-way stop, and there's a SUV that's white with blacked-out windows with the same license plate, and it pulls out of a driveway right next to that four-way stop. And it follows me all the way to the grocery store. And I'm looking in my rearview mirror. This guy is right on my bumper. This guy... Obviously, he was following me, especially because of what just happened. I said I recognized the license plate. It was mm-hmm. the same. And I park in the, fir- the front, the first space available. I think it was a handicapped space at the grocery store. And this, there's a bunch of people outside the grocery store. So I figured, okay, well, if this guy's going to arrest me or if he's going to do something crazy, this he's going to have to do it in front of all these people. Right. And he doesn't stop. He keeps on going and pulls out of the shopping center. So I don't know where he went, but... That was probably that was the first hair raising incident. Well, after I shop at the grocery store, I come back home and I call my friend Nick to find out what had happened, what what he meant by that comment. Mm-hmm. Well, Nick didn't talk to me for about a week, and when he did call me, he said, "Okay, well, I can't do our paranormal team anymore, and I can't do our UFO case." And I thought that was kind of strange coming from, because I've known him since I was like 13. Right. And uh, like I said, I'd known him for at least 10 years at this point. So I actually didn't hear from Nick for almost a year after this. And I know from mutual friends of ours that Nick did talk to when I wasn't talking to him, our mutual friends were saying that that military, I don't know if it was that specific guy, but the military entity of some sort visited him before they came and visited me and they were telling him at the time that his college records were going to be ruined because he was trying to get into the military at the time he wasn't going to be able to get into the military they were going to 
uh, I don't know if they're going to erase his records or somehow alter them, but they were going to do something to ruin his college records. And they said he would never be able to get a job ever again in Nevada. Wow. So they were they actually threatened. They didn't threaten me. They threatened him. Right. And to this day, I mean, we're, we're back on speaking terms and we do paranormal stuff again together. But if I talk to him about it, he, to this day, he won't tell me what they told him. And he, when sometimes he even it says that, that they never visited him at all. Hmm. Depending on the mood that he's in, so right. I don't know what they said, but he still won't admit to me what 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 said to him. Right. So that was the first hair raising incident, I guess. Besides the lady, the 1952 thing, the interview. Right. Well, that happened on September 11th of 2014. Well, on September 11th of 2015. Uh, again, I I didn't have a radio show the night before this one, but this was one year to the day. I know because I write on a blog and I I was looking at the dates. This was one year to the day. I was came home from work, and when I pulled into the driveway, there was a, looked like a like a minivan or a cargo van was parked across the street with the blacked out windows. And the white license plate with the silver letters that said U.S. government official use only. And uh, this time I was like, okay, well, there was no people standing outside the car, but they're sitting outside the house parked across the street. Right. I turned the camera on my cell phone when I was pulling into the driveway. And when I parked the car, they were still sitting across the street, but it was turned off. As soon as I step out of the car and I point my camera phone at the the van, all of a sudden the van starts up and they try to almost like floor it to get out of the neighborhood because they see I'm going to take their picture. And as they're pulling off, I actually do snap their picture. And uh, I sent I sent you the picture over email. Right. I don't know if you got a chance to check that out. Yeah. But uh, I took their picture as they're driving off. But uh, so that was that. Um, I have a friend that actually used to work at Area 52, which is out in the Groom Lake, uh, I don't want to call it the Groom Lake military area. Mm. And uh, he told me that uh, as he used to work on the stealth fighters and the stealth bombers out there on the base, mm -hmm. this is when they were still top secret before the public really knew about them. And he told me that out on, on the Groom Lake, there is a private prison out there that's run by the government. It doesn't even have a name. But this this prison, he said, is one – I'm trying to think of how to word this for your listeners. They take people that talk about UFOs and aliens and people that talk about all this top secret type stuff. And if they need to, they bring them to that prison out there. And he said he had some friends that used to work out there when he was out there mess, working on the stealth fighters and stealth bombers. And they had told him how the process works for the men in black or the military or whatever you want to call them. He was saying that they told him that initially they'll make contact with you in person. And he, he says that they'll, they'll scour the area around wherever you're at constantly for, I guess, a short amount of time, maybe for like a month or two, they'll be there periodically a bunch of times to let you know that they're in the area and kind of intimidate you. He says that they never truly stop. He said 
is that they periodically, I guess once every few months or once every few years, they'll appear outside of a person's house or their workplace to let them know that they're still paying attention to whatever you're doing and that they're still keeping tabs on you. Hmm. I think that the either the, the when the two people imitated me and Nick, I don't know if that was their initial contact or if when he saw me outside the house, if that was the initial contact. Right. But I've seen the I've seen the van outside the house at least twice. The one time I took their picture, the other time they were just parked there and drove off when I came home from work again. They're always outside when I come home from work. I don't know why, but they're always there. <laughs> um so I think that they're doing the tactics that my friend said that they're still there and they still come by every few months to let me know that they're still keeping tabs on me. I don't know if they People always ask me if I'm afraid that they tap my phone or that one of these days they're going to come get me. Not really, I guess, because I was never threatened. I was never told not to do this by any government people or the military. So right. I guess until they start telling me not to do it, I won't really be afraid of it. But Right. Well, and really, what are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, yeah. if they're going to come take you, they're going to come take you. There's there's no stopping it. So. Uh, oh, yeah. So um, you want me to talk about The Rock? Yeah. So, anyway, so I I was also talking about The Rock. I, I always talk about it on all my interviews, and sometimes I bring it to the the studio if I'm going in the studio. Okay. Um, this rock I was given to by a lady that lives very close to the 1953 UFO crash site. Mm-hmm. And she told me at the time that she didn't know if this was a – UFO related or not, she's told me it was a strange rock she had found. And she said that she found it near a pile of sand that was outside of the copper mine. The best way to word this is the tailings ponds for the mine are on mine property. Mm-hmm. And when most of the time when they dig dirt out of these mines, they don't dump it outside of mine property because that would technically be illegal. Well, she said that she looked at the historical records in the area and there was no explanation for where this dirt came from or why it would be there. And she said that the dirt was different color than all the dirt around it. And I guess, I don't know if it was in piles. I didn't see the site myself, but she told me that it was almost in like small piles, but that had been hardened over time by rain and all that. Hmm. But she said that there was some rocks over there that were red in color. Well, I know from, from uh, another UFO thing that happened in the 1970s that this was actually a hardened red ooze or a type of oil that had come out of the craft in the 1970s, but it happened on the same land that the 1950s thing did. So um, without getting too far into that, it was a type of oil or a type of ooze that had come out of this craft in the 70s, mm-hmm. and I guess – over time, this ooze had hardened into this, into these rocks. And of course, as part of a cover up, they dug the dirt off where all this ooze and this liquid was sprayed out. They, they took some backhoes and they dug this dirt and they dumped it outside of the mine. This is my personal opinion. I think they dumped that dirt outside the mine. And this woman, because she goes on hikes in the area, she happened to come across these piles of sand with these rocks in it. Mm-hmm. Well, 
she given me one of these rocks and she was saying, well, well, you could keep this rock, but I have an even stranger rock. And I call this the scrambled egg rock. It was a, it was a yellow, looked like scrambled eggs and it was, it had ripples in it, this, this substance. It almost looked like it had been melted at one point. And it was hollow on the inside because part of it was broken open. It looked like a honeycomb structure inside. Hmm. And, uh, she said that there was like two of those rocks, one or two of those rocks were laying in the same area where all these red colored rocks were. She didn't let me take those rocks, the, the scrambled egg rock home, but she did let me take one of the red rocks home. Mm. So I got this looked at by some geologists that work for the mine, the senior geologists. I got looked at by uh, two professors at UNLV down here in Las Vegas mm-hmm. and some of the smelter workers that worked for the copper mine over in the town of McGill, Nevada. And uh, after doing different tests and different types of observations on these on this rock, so far nobody could tell me definitively what this rock is. They say some people say that it might be a type of hematite rock, but um, I'm not an expert on rocks or anything like that. But they say for some reason it doesn't fit the exact description of uh, of your average hematite rock. Okay. Um, the, in the pictures I took, it almost looks like it's like a, like a, like a brownish dark colored rock. You can't really see, but it looks red in real life, but in the picture, it looks like a, I guess you would just call it a dark colored. Yeah. Unfortunately, pictures never do what you're taking the picture of justice. (laughs) I mean, I'm looking at it right now. On the one picture you could, on the smooth side of the rock, you could kind of see that it's, like a reddish color, but you can't see all that well. Right. Um, magnets actually stick to the rock, so it has magnetic properties. Hmm. And uh, I tried using some of our paranormal equipment. It doesn't doesn't have any kind of strange properties other than that. And the rock is actually it's kind of heavy for its size. It's about the size, I guess. Uh, I'd say maybe a little bit bigger than a half dollar, but it for some reason it's pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you hold it up to the light, it doesn't have like it doesn't have any kind of sparkles in it or anything like that. So I I don't really know what's so strange about it. But like I said, the geologists all oh, they go crazy over this thing when you show them. <laughs> well, I mean, coming from any type of scientific background, you know, if you find something that's specific to your science and you can't explain it, they're yeah. they're gonna do everything they can to to get the knowledge to tell you, but they can't explain it. So, so yeah. of course, they're getting excited, but they can't do anything about it. So. Well, I don't know if the men in black showed up because of, I don't know if they want to try to take this rock or if it's because of the stories. I'm pretty sure it has to do with that turtle skull story, but yeah. uh, like I said, because I've talked about the rock uh, lots of times, actually, and they never came when I talked about the rock, but they started showing up once I started talking about the alien bodies and all that sort of thing. Hmm. So, all right. So, a lot of witnesses ask me, "What proof do I have beyond the the story that one story about the 1964 railroad incident?" Well, like I said, I talked to the brake man who said that he was on the train that day. I, I wanted to find more witnesses. Just in case, I don't know if he was lying or he forgot part of the story. Right. So, um, 
I received a call one day after appearing in the Ely Times newspaper, and this guy, he actually called me and said that he knew the story, and he said this took place about 20 miles outside of Cherry Creek, and this is before I visited the site. He told me that it happened about 20 miles outside of Cherry Creek, and he said that he knew he knew where this happened because he said his mom was there. And he lived on a ranch close to there in present modern day. He still lived on a ranch out there that he grew up on. Hmm. So his mom was actually one of those two ranchers that the brakeman had told me about uh, when he told me the story from his recollection. And this guy told me that his mom, to this day, he didn't tell me that his mom was the female rancher, but putting two and two together, obviously, he was, his right. mom was one. Um, he said that his mom has pieces of that whatever she picked up off the ground nowadays. And he said that it's, it looks like a green glass with almost looks like glitter in it. And he says that it's not like a metal. It's similar, more closely related to a glass. And this guy, he hadn't talked to any of the other witnesses that I know of. He didn't know the guy, the brake man on the train, and he didn't know any of the military guys. And he was describing the same thing that the the leader of the military group saw. Mm-hmm. Like I said, he said that it was a good look like glass, that he wasn't standing on the desert floor, except for the glitter that was around him, or like sparkles. And this guy was telling me that his mom had pieces of some some kind of glass material that she had picked up, and he said that it was almost transparent. Well... I tried to meet up with the guy to look at the greenish glass material, but of course, he ended up moving away out of town, and then I can't get a hold of him because he changed all of his contact information. <laughs> of course, that's how things work. Right, yeah. So, um, I just have his description of that. Well, I was thinking, okay, well, the interstate wasn't there at the time, but like I said, that dirt road is still there today, and the railroad tracks aren't used but you could still drive on that dirt road. So this is just, what, two weeks ago I was in Ely. I was driving out on that dirt road. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't really tell where the UFO crash happened today unless someone were to take you out there. Okay. And I sent you some pictures of my friend Nick standing in front of a, it looks like a crater, an impact crater. Right. But uh, like I said, if you didn't know where to look, you wouldn't know where to find that. Well, this crater, it's... It's pretty big. I'd say it's about the size of a one- or two-story house. And if you're standing in there, the hole doesn't have really any magnetic properties that I know of, but um, you'll see that it's definitely taller than a person. And again, this this hole is kind of in the middle of nowhere. There's no towns anywhere nearby there. Mm-hmm. And there is no reason for it to be there. There's no mining activities right there. But I wanted to bring a Geiger counter out there and test it to see if there's any kind of radiation. But um, I, I didn't have a Geiger counter with me last time. I got to come back. I was trying to come back in March to test all this again. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, so um, that guy that sorry, this kind of relates. This relates back to the. This relates back to the the guy who said that his mom had gone out to the crash site. Oh, okay. Um, he had told me that if if I don't believe him, I guess he 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 was acting like he didn't think that I believed him. He told me that if I don't believe him, 
to contact this contact this individual. He's he was a county commissioner at the time for one of the counties in northern Nevada. Mm-hmm. I was told that he is the only other surviving person that was on the train that day other than the brake man. Um, I called him uh, probably about five or six times and get an answer from the guy. So after leaving tons of voicemails on this guy's phone, eventually he calls me and uh, I start explaining to him that I'm doing a research project about UFOs and the guy, the guy seems fine with it. He's like, okay, I'll talk to you. And suddenly when I tell the guy, I go, okay, well, I was told by this other witness to talk to you that you were on the train when this happened. That's what all the locals are saying. Mm-hmm. And the guy all of a sudden started yelling at me and he started getting angry. And he started telling me that he didn't, there's no such thing as aliens. And, <laughs> and he started, I don't know what you want to call it, acting all angry. So in the middle of him yelling at me, I, uh, I was talking to my brother on my side of the phone. I didn't think that he could hear me. And I said, well, he's, he says that he doesn't know anything about the UFO crash and he's saying that this didn't happen. And all of a sudden on the phone I hear he stops yelling at me and he goes, he gets a really serious tone of voice and he says, well, the UFO crash happened, but you need to talk to administration. They're the ones that know about this. So... And then after that, he hung up uh, a couple minutes after that, but he wouldn't explain anything further than that. Wow. So um, I guess he really was on the train. He didn't say whether he was or he wasn't, but like I said, uh, two or three different people put him on the train that day, right. and they, they, they saw him there, so I guess he really was. And he says that the old railroad records will have proof that this happened. So... Um, my next time I went to Ely, I went to the Nevada Northern Railway Museum. Like I said, the railroad doesn't run anymore besides trips up and down a short area of track for visitors to the museum. Mm-hmm. But they have an archive building that you have to go to by appointment only. And it has every record from this railroad from the 1800s all the way up until the 1982, I think it is, when the railroad shut down. Mm-hmm. And... uh I was looking for records of either a damage on the tracks or for the railroad being shut down. And uh, while we're looking at all these records, we ended up coming, we ended up finding a piece of paper in the re, in a box that just said repairs. And it says that in 1964, there was 36 feet of track that was damaged right outside of Cherry Creek. And it says that there was a train that was partially derailed, and it said that the people that were on the train were brought back into Ely, Nevada. But there's doesn't say anything about the train leaving or what it was doing, and it doesn't say who took them off the train. Mm-hmm. And what was weird about it is uh, the names were blacked out on this piece of paper. And when you're looking through the records, the names aren't blocked out on any of these papers, but only that one. And uh, I was going to say, I asked the historian or the curator, whatever you want to call him at the museum, his name is Sean Pitts. I asked him, so is this strange to you? I mean, is this out of the ordinary? His eyes got really big and he's like, uh, I've worked here for several years. And I've never, ever seen a that big of a portion of track that's been damaged before. Wow. 
because I guess the tracks come in 12 foot sections, he said, mm-hmm. and that was a three sections of track. Right. And he said that was a pretty major damage. And like I said, there was also the, the train derailed. So that, that document goes along with uh, stories from the witnesses and the stories from the military. So I guess this actually did happen. There's more proof for the 1964 incident than there is for the 50s. But of course, that doesn't mean that that didn't happen in the 50s. Right. It just means that I don't know if the government censored the, the say, information. They probably covered their tracks better than, that, oh, yeah. than they did in the 64. And there's no, there's no newspaper documentation saying that there's a UFO crash outside of town by Cherry Creek. But what there is for that time period is there's a, there's a newspaper article that says that there was a Nevada Northern Railway train driving at nighttime the night before. And it says that they saw something that sounded looked like a Roman candle explode in the middle of the air and come down outside of Cherry Creek. Wow. It doesn't say, like I said, that there's aliens or that right, they right. came across the crash. I don't know which direction they were driving in, but there are document documentation of the object actually exploding in the air. Hmm. And then uh, the, the next month, which would be February of 1964... They were actually there's a news article saying that NICAP, which is now MUFON, mm-hmm. they said that uh they were actually in Ely interviewing witnesses. So mm-hmm. something happened out there and NICAP was even interested in it. Right. And uh Donald Kehoe, who was the head at the head of NICAP at the time, he was actually the one that was quoted in there. And he ended up becoming the the founder of MUFON, like I said, so I don't, they sent, basically, they sent their best to Ely at the time. They didn't send just some ran, random investigator. They sent the right, best. Right. And, uh, I don't mean to slam MUFON here or anything, but I tried contacting MUFON. I contacted the Nevada state director. I contacted the state director of Utah, California, Idaho, all the surrounding states. And no one will give me these records. They say that they don't exist. Or that they exist, but they don't have permission to get the records. They keep leading me around in circles. No one will give me a definite answer on where they're at or who to talk to. Wow. So MUFON has the records, the old NICAP records, but for some reason they don't want to share them with the public. And I noticed after doing these UFO cases, um, MUFON says that they exist to serve the public right. and tells about UFOs. That's I don't really say think. if if they serve the public, why are they not? <laughs> I was going to say because there's the 1953 thing. There's the incident that took place over uh, over Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. There's the object outside of Cherry Creek. Right. There's that object in the 1970s. I told you that had the oil or goo. Mm-hmm. You got to tell me that MUFON doesn't have records of any of this. Right. And then they're cited in the Ely Times newspaper saying that they were there when it happened. I mean, that's kind of crazy to me to think that they don't have these records. Right. And, uh, I noticed if you, if you, if you go on the MUFON website, there's tons and tons of reports available talking about lights in the sky or people that see strange objects in the sky. But the really good stuff like trace cases or crashes, that kind of isn't even reported on their website for the most part. Hmm. I don't know if they hide those reports or what they do. Um, 
I know that Leonard Stringfield, before he died, he was publishing books about UFO crashes as UFO reports. And he was saying that he was working part-time for the government. So I don't know if MUFON works with the government and they're told not to release those files or what the deal is, but right. for one reason or another, they won't release the files. Hmm. I like um, So if there's any news coming through the Ely area, it's going to be in the Ely Times newspaper because that's one of the only media sources that's been around pretty much forever, even up till nowadays. Oh, okay. They don't talk about a lot of the UFO activity. I mean, the, the crashes. They talk about they talk about people seeing strange things, and they talk about if there is a crash or a strange object. They they will talk about it, but for some reason, there's no documentation from the 50s object. Like I was saying, I don't know if there's more sense censoring of the information going on in right. the later, the earlier times, or yeah. Well, I mean, just look at Roswell. Just at the starting point of it all, they they covered it up after announcing, "Hey, we have a UFO." Oh, hey, no, it was a weather balloon. So yeah. they they were they were definitely starting at that point censoring what what they were bringing out to the media. So uh, oh yeah. All right, uh, Jeremy, we are at the end here. So I did want to give you a chance again to tell everybody where they can find you, find the radio show, all that good stuff. All right. Well, um, we're, we haven't done a radio show in about a year, but um, if you want to find out more about me, go to bigfootspad.com or search Jeremy Metter UFO or Jeremy Metter Bigfoots Pad on Google, and you'll find our main website or you'll find my blog on there. Um, sorry, I have a couple different websites, so the best way to explain it is go to bigfootspad.com or you could email me at bigfootspad at yahoo.com or crash at yahoo.com. Awesome. All right, Jeremy, thank you so much for being on. And uh, I definitely would love to have you on again in the future. You've got plenty more uh, research that you've done outside of the UFOs. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) So on that uh, note, it was great talking to you, and I hope to talk to you soon, sir. All right, thanks. Thanks for having me on. All right, have a good night. All right, you too. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that was Jeremy Metter, and uh, he was has done numerous research on uh, a lot of UFO crashes as well as uh, several other subjects that uh, maybe we can get him on in the future with. Uh, so uh, that's all we got for you this week. Uh, next week, we do have some special co-hosts coming on with us. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Supernatural, Heidi and Scott will be with us doing our Halloween episode. There will be, I'm sure, plenty of this. What does the fox say? What the fox say? Oh.
and some of this. Manamana. 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 So uh, we are looking forward to that. Eric should be back for that episode, so I'm hoping that he will be here. And uh, hopefully he's done soon with his uh, movie gigs, so that way he can come back and entertain you guys along with me. So on that note, that's all we got for you this week. And uh, we've got a bunch of other stuff coming up. Uh, We've got uh, L.A. Marzulli scheduled to be on several times in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we also have Mary Sutherland on. So stay tuned for all that stuff and more right here on Paratruth Radio. That is all I've got for you. My name is Justin, and we will see you guys same time, same channel next week, guys. Peace. If you enjoyed this episode of Paratruth Radio and you would like to listen to it again, or are interested in listening to any of our past episodes, then you can listen to them on HD at our website, paratruthradio.com. And you can also find us at Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, iTunes, Spreaker, and YouTube. And of course, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for brand new updates of our show every day. Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it.